Welcome to Broadcasting Common Ground, the Deep Foundation Institute's podcast channel. In this series, Deep Dive, host Tim Siegel will dig deep into a variety of topics related to Pile Foundations alongside experienced members of the industry. Welcome to DFI's podcast, Broadcasting Common Ground. I'm Tim Siegel, and it's my pleasure to be here with you in the introductory episode of our series, Deep Dive. As you may have guessed, this series is about digging into a relevant deep foundation topic. Each episode is divided into two parts for the purpose of giving us sufficient time. We're going to be talking about the complexity of pile behavior and especially how it is manifested in low test results. Today, our guest is Professor Kyle Rollins from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. I suspect that most of our audience is familiar with Kyle, but for others, I want to share that Kyle has been at the forefront of pile behavior research for many years. He is uniquely equipped for this episode. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks, Tim. It's good to be here with you. Kyle, it's great to have you. Um, you know, before we jump into the topic, I would like to give our audience a chance to get a little bit to know about you and particularly, you know, your background and even, you know, maybe a little bit about your dad, who I understand was a, a professor also at BYU. Um, yeah, I've been here at uh, BYU for 36 years now. That's uh, quite a quite a while. Uh, it's turned out different than I ever suspected, but it's been more exciting than I planned as well. Now, Great part dad... about it is has been able to get to know other professionals in the field and become friends with them, and that's been a great part of my life. Now, was your dad a, a geotech too? Yeah, he was a ge geotech professor, and he also operated a consulting firm. He had about 60 employees, and so I kind of grew up in a geotechnical environment, you might say, and when I went to school, I was a little surprised at to learn that the other kids didn't know that the three clay minerals were kaolinite, ilonite, and montmorillonite. <laughs> my, my dad would typically wake up at about five in the morning. He uh, got ready and taught his classes at the university, and then he went to his consulting firm from between one and two in the afternoon, wrote his reports and things, and then he ran three miles before coming home. So he was quite an inspiration as a worker. And he did uh, geotechnical investigations for about 5,000 structures and 90 earth dams during his career. So it was when he would teach us something, it was something he just didn't learn in a book. It was something that he had been working on the, the day before. <laughs> you know, he was a very experienced engineer as well as a, a professor. Wow, Kyle, I, I didn't even know that. Not We've known each other for a number of years, but I didn't realize, I mean, it, I mean, that's, excuse the pun, but that's really old school. Right? <laughs> so he came came home once when I was when I was 15 and said, how'd you like to work at my company? And I said, yeah, that's a lot better than weeding flower beds. <laughs> so he, I worked as a, with the surveying crew and then I did soil lab work and had me out inspecting compaction. And uh, then we... As I got my background at the university, I did um, field investigations for dams and wrote soils reports and 
as I learned uh, finite element analyses, he'd have me do those for uh, seepage in dams and things like that. So I, I really got great experience working with him. Now, when, when did you, when did it come to you that you wanted to be a professor in geotechnical engineering? Um, well, after I graduated at, at uh, well, let's go back. He, he said, um, uh, you know, if you really want to uh, get at the forefront of your field, you should go to Cal Berkeley because that's one of the schools in the in the field. And I was really excited about earthquake engineering, liquefaction. But when I got done, I I interviewed with consulting firms, but I I also interviewed at uh, at BYU, and that was um, it seemed like a, a really great opportunity for me because I could have a lot more freedom to study the things I wanted to do and and still keep involved in the consulting world. So I decided that that's the path I'd, I'd choose. I could have become a principal in my dad's consulting firm, but I guess that, was a, that would have led to other exciting things, but I've been happy with my career. Wow. Well, we're certainly glad you did because, I mean, we get the chance to see all the cool things that you do. And um, you know, I, I, we, when we first formulated the concept of this podcast, you know, the things that kind of came to mind is kind of the, you know, the attempt to kind of geek out and look at the certain topics with like an, you know, an x-ray and I, you instantly came to mind. I was like, this is going to be perfect because, you know, we're going to be talking about piles and particularly load testing. And and sadly, not a lot of geotechs get a chance to see a load test. And even a lot less geotechs get to see a, a very well done load test and even less get a chance to analyze that data and try to understand what it really is meaning. So here's their chance. They get to hear it from you. And, you know, and maybe when they do get the chance down the road, they'll be thinking about some of the conversations that you and I will have. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. Um, uh, we've kind of conducted our research work uh, with the idea that one good test is worth a thousand expert opinions. Werner von Braun said that um, back in the 60s when he was in charge of this moon rocket program. Uh, it's just that it, uh, a test gives you so much more confidence about what you're doing. And as geotechnical engineers, we're, we're used to have, dealing with uncertainty, but it really is empowering to have some results that you can rely on and see this is how the ground is really behaving. And then you can adjust your theories and your parameters so that they match the real world. Very cool. Okay. so. So I, I kind of want to start at the beginning because that's how I am. I'm a linear thinker. And so um, uh, just a little bit of my experience has been that it's the days leading up to the load test that setting expectations is very important. Um and that goes for everybody. That goes from not only the geotechnical engineer, but also the folks in the field. Um, you know, so I guess my my first question for you is, what 
what do you think are the aspects in planning a load test that you would say are critical to know? Yeah. So the you know the the standard thing from axial load test is to get the pile head load versus deflection curve, and that's critical and very useful. But I think there is so much more that we can get out of a test than um, just this basic um, parameter. Uh, I think it's really great if we can get the contribution of side and toe resistance so we can separate out those two important factors. Uh, we need to think about what method we're going to use for getting our ultimate or our design capacity or design resistance. And I think it's also really helpful to have a distribution of load versus depth. And uh, this requires strain gauges and extra effort to do that. But if you've already, you're already going to the effort of doing, um, of the cost of doing a load test, it seems like that's something we ought to really try and to include on things. Um, this also gives you the opportunity, if you have the load versus depth, you can also, with enough strain gauges, you can come up with the, the QZ curve that gives you the um, toe resistance versus toe deflection curve, which turns out to be really critical for down drag issues. Uh, we have normalized curves that we can use uh, but here again, if you if you have a measured value that you feel comfortable with, then this can really really aid. Those are so those are some of the things that um, I would think of getting to. And in many cases, people are just trying to get um, a capacity that's twice as high or two and a half times higher than the um, design value that they're going to need. But if you could, if you could make the extra effort to get to the failure criteria, uh, I think you have we have a potential for advancing the profession and and uh, learning a lot more than what we're doing. No, no you, you you hit it right on. Uh, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times that once we start getting into discussing back and forth within the design team or within the whole project team, what I find out is that there's this, this, this kind of this looming set of expectations is number one, a single load test, uh, a single, I'll say pass fail load test will sufficient is sufficient for everything. Oh. It's like, okay. And so, you're going to go out there, you're going to run a test, and then you're going to say good, or you're going to say bad. And if it's bad, the world's come to an end. People just, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, we've got a bad, they start looking at the installer and they say, what did you do wrong? And, you know, and it's like, well, instead of saying, okay, we're going into a load test, let's get some good subsurface information right at the load test. You know, so we know, are we are we tipped in sand or is that sand and we not make it there? I want to know that. Um, yeah. You know, I want to know when I, um, you know, I want a good idea of how much the pile will take so that I am going to push it toward uh, its um, fully mobilized condition. You know, I don't want to just get a straight line where it got a 10th of an inch of movement and then unload it. Cause I mean, yeah. what, what good is that? 
Um, I'd like to see that bend in the curve. Um, you know, the we've even had cases, and you probably haven't these had had anything similar. You're you're a little bit more highbrow than we are, but sometimes <laughs> we loaded and and we're not exactly sure where we're getting any load on the pile. You know, we're, yeah. we're like, do we really believe this, Jack? Do we really believe this? And you're like going, well, and okay, I mean, tenth of an inch. Uh, you kind of want to, you, I guess my, my feeling is you don't want to, and I say this often going into load test, we don't want to bring a knife to a gunfight. If we're going to, if we're going to load test this thing, let's load test it to where it can't take any more or else we're kind of sacrificing, you know? Yeah. I, I feel the same way. Um, now I'll, I say conversely, um, on the part of of folks is that last minute changes uh, yeah. a lot of times we get there and people will say well you are going to hold it for an hour uh or you're or even worse they'll say you are going to load it to the max to the design load and then you're going to unload it and then you're going to reload it and i'm like going no 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 we don't want to do that um because you're going to make it especially if we unload it um we're going to have difficulty with the strain gauges. Have you, has that, tell me your experience, my, my experience, and I'd like to know what you think, but as it's, you know, interpret, interpreting strain gauges is from, for me, it, it's never perfect. And then you want to make it as simple as possible. And when you start to unload, things start to get more complex. Is that, Tell me what your thoughts are. Yeah, um, if you get lucky and uh, things are behaving a little more linearly, you might um, come back to residual stresses that are not residual strains that are not too bad. But you can also uh, get residual stresses in there that really complicate your interpretation of what's going on. Um, so I, I, I guess in some of the projects that we've learned a little bit more about, and maybe going back a bit, but uh, we were in a project in Sacramento where we, where we, they were trying to decide would it be better to put the pile at this shallower depth or to go to a, a deeper layer with a higher, with a denser sand with the, and, and they, so they did, they put in two piles and yeah. they were both tested with the same frame. And uh, by thinking a little bit in the planning process, they were really able to get a lot more valuable information. And they decided it was much more valuable to go deeper to that um, denser layer because of the huge increase in resistance that they had, rather than just stay um, at the shallower depth. It might You might think, oh, that's the cheaper alternative. But it, it turned out it wasn't the cheaper oh, alternative. Yeah. Uh, so it was well worth the time to have a second pile to investigate a different possibility at the design stage where it could still be changed. No, I, in fact, we, I mean, we almost on, I'd say on any project of probably on that uh, medium, large to very large, we'd like to see some different length piles and mm. kind of that idea of kind of tuning in, especially if we've had good CPT data that tries to identify what 
the contribution is for each zone. And I guess my, um, you know, that that kind of data that you just talked about is so valuable that, you know, the the risk of losing that strain gauge data, um, like you said, you mentioned kind of having in residual stresses locked in, but you're also a professor that's used to dealing with residual stresses. Maybe what, what I'd like to do is just maybe have you explain what you're talking about, about loading and unloading and residual stresses, because I'm not sure our, our listeners know that exists. Could you do that? Um, I can try. Uh, when you When you take the load off the pile, um, you want to be able to measure the strain again um, at the end of the loading cycle. And sometimes when you do that, you'll you'll see that there are strains that are, you still have some vertical stresses at the bottom of the pile, for example, that, that weren't there to begin with. And now you have to think of, I, is, are the pile, are the strain gauges, um, having problems releasing the strain? Uh, are there real loads there? Um, am I gonna need to um, zero out from the very first of the test? Or if I re-zero, is everything gonna be completely uh, incorrect? And so all those um, situations where you're trying to decide whether I re-zero or not for the next test become really important. Um, so that you can see how the pile is really behaving under that load scenario. Right, right. So so kind of in different words, when we yes. initially load it in compression, we generally see that the compressed load increases near the top of the pile more quickly than the toe of the pile. Yeah. Right. And we kind of see a, almost like a wave front going through the pile. But then when we unload from the top, what happens is that the side resistance reverses and kind of keeps that pile almost like a pre-stress in it. Yeah. And frankly, we just don't know. I mean, we get an array of strains, but frankly, it may not be linear. It may not be no longer that wavefront. Some areas yeah. may give up their stresses than others, right? So now you got this a little bit of... A little bit of interpretation is needs to be made to understand exactly which one is a residual load. And then when you reload it, you kind of got to piece those things back together. Exactly. And yeah. it's just. I, and it really complicates the situation if you don't have to do that. And then it's, I to me, it's, it's complicated enough already. We've, we've, even a one that's straightforward, you look at sometimes a data and you go, I can't believe it. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this question. Uh, you know, there's there's a few ways of you taking 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 the strain gauges and interpreting the load at that level in pile because we're measuring strain. We're not really measuring compressive load. There's uh you know, um, the tangent method, which um, uh, is uh, Bank Fellini's proposed that does basically like, like a little bit of an, I think it's, uh, you take the integral 
I think of like the secant curve. I, I can't remember the details, but basically it's trying to get the modulus after the load has been fully developed. Then there's like the, the uh, that's the tangent method. Then there's kind of a secant method where you put some strain gauges near the top and allow you to calibrate the other strain gauges. And then there's the more, you know, recently proposed one uh, that, and I can't remember the, but I know that um, uh, the folks at GRL have been involved with. Do you, do you have a strong preference or suggestions? We, we've used, uh, we've used both of those first two that you described. Um, uh, we've, in some of our more recent tests, we've been using the Felenius's um, approach where we use a tangent value, and it seems to do a pretty nice job for us. Um, you, you would think the, you know, the equation for load is just strain times cross-sectional area times elastic modulus, and you go, oh, that's pretty simple. I learned that in mechanics materials. But nevertheless, it's really true that there's so many uncertainties in converting load to uh, strain to load. And one of the advantages of Galenius's approach is that you can uh, directly see the effect of um, the increase in, in confining pressure on the on the modulus that you're getting. And you can see it from each strain gauge level as you go through the process. Uh, at smaller strains where you're still maybe developing some side resistance, you, you can't do it so well. But if you go out to higher strains, maybe 75 micro, micro strain or above, then you can get a fairly nice trend. Uh, we use that on a, some testing we did in, in uh, New Zealand and it, where we were using auger cast piles and it was critical for us to do that. Um, I think you have some good data over the years that you've assembled for um, elastic modulus with unconfined compression tests, but some people will use, you know, ACI values of 57,000 mm. times square root of F prime sub C. And I think this is pretty conservative and, and doesn't give you the real situation there. No, that's a good, good point that you brought up. And I, like I said, that, I mean, that really, I think, is a modulus at rupture for, I think, really, well, concrete or grout. And, mm. you know, I think there is a nonlinear effect. And so I, my observation is when people use that, that ACI, whatever, 57,000 times the square root of F prime sub yeah. C, they're going to usually get a softer response. That's just yes. mine than what, especially they're not going to pick up load with increased in low, you know, especially at the low, low levels, they're mm -hmm. going to end up getting load. They're going to end up with no load developed deeper when there is load developed deeper because it's actually behaving stiffer. Yeah. And they're going to go, my gosh, I got, I got 200 kips in the upper four, you know, 10 feet. And it's like, no, you didn't. You just didn't. Your pot, your string gauge below that, it, it thinks it's, it's, it thinks the material is a lot softer than it really is behaving. That's just my, my experience. Yeah, it's a much uh, more complicated thing than people realize. 
Um, we had, in for that reason, in most of our research studies, we tried to use steel pipe piles with the end plate because then we didn't have to worry as much about um, nonlinearity and variabilities that you might see. And that that turned out to be real helpful. Of course, it helped to have Geneva Steel Mill and Provo donating things and Atlas Tube supporting us and their mill in Chicago. And, uh, but many times you're dealing with precast concrete piles or cast in place piles. And, and so you have to deal with that. Even coming up with just the area of the pile that you're talking about is. No, that's great. No, these simple. are all things that are. <laughs> lead to the uh uncertainty in our interpretation you just the simpler it, that's why i go back to the simpler at least eliminates the vari variables which those variables you've already mentioned we can't diameter the nonlinear modulus the effective depth on modulus which and then you know some people could argue that the effective temperature on modulus um oh the, it becomes a problem um yeah in fact, I'll get to my. I'll, I'm going to share with you my pet peeve, and this is okay. here. Here is the, here it is. Um, probably fifty percent of the time, when we run, we were out to run a load test, we get pushback about the ASTM saying you've got to hold a constant load. So. In that, in their mind's eye, what they say, and uh, is that when you're running the test, say you run up, say say you run it up to fifty kips, they want you to be dead on fifty kips for the entire hold time, and then when you move up, they want you to be dead on that, even if you start having to adjust the jack. Now, my experience is that, you know, that that may be okay if you do it in the early stages, but in the later stages of the test, what I see is that, let's just say our target load is 250 kips. Once we get on this, we start really mobilizing a lot of side and some toe, when we get to 250 kips during the whole time, the pile is going to begin to move and the jack starts to lose pressure and the load starts to decrease. Sure. Now you have two choices. You can either let it reach some equilibrium and write that down, or you can start hitting the jack. But when you start hitting that jack, you put another pulse of load into the pile, changes your strain gauges, starts moving the dial gauges. And then if you try to hold that, it's going to start moving the pile again. Yeah. And you're like in this death spiral of changing your strain gauges, changing the dial gauges, and you're still never going to be dead on on the constant load. So yeah. My, okay. So let you comment. What's your what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a it's a question of um, following the code explicitly or. I remember we were doing a load test, uh, a, a group, our first group lateral load test, and Dan Brown was there, and they someone said, "What, what code are you using? What standard are you using to do this load test?" And he says, "We're not using a standard. We're, we're um, contracting with people who know what they're doing, and we're letting them do the test." 
<laughs> well, here here's what I've here's what I have told them in the past. I sell them. I tell them that the um, that the constant load isn't defined, and whatever we end up with at our final reading is the load that I intended to be constant. Anyway, but that's that's me. But um, yeah, we've we've found uh, it's that we'd rather um, leave the load, uh, lock off the um, volume in the jack, and let it come to equilibrium at the load and displacement it's going to get to over a certain period of time and take Absolutely. that value. I, uh, it becomes a real problem when you're doing cyclic lateral tests. If you go up to a certain load level and then take the load off and then put it back on, back to that same load level, then you get progressively, cycle, get progressively yeah. more displacement at that um, same increment of load level. And uh, then you try to go up to the next increment and you've, you may in some cases almost go past the next increment you want to get and you will get a softened backbone curve that you would get if you just loaded the whole thing one cycle. So we, in those cases, we've gone to the uh, load level to get us to a displacement. And then we use that same displacement and we load up to that displacement each time and track what the effect of the cyclic loading is by how much of a reduction in load you get getting up to that value each time. Um, no, I'm, I'm I'm glad I to, that you said that, and I, I hope that our listeners who are really interested in load testing kind of get that. I think the thought that went into that part of the ASTM where they said hold a constant load, that they did not understand that the most critical part of the load distribution is near is your technical failure, and that is precisely the point at which you need good strain gauge data and by bumping the load for the sake of an ASTM particularly near geotechnical failure where you're really not capable of of holding constant load you hold a load and then it's going to move the pile and and then you're going to have to add more load and you the strain gauges are going to basically they're going to just do like this yeah for a period of time and that's going to make what strain gauge do what what data do I take? Um, yeah. Uh, you try and take some average or it just really complicates some, things. It just um, it's just anyway, I I that's my pet peeve. I'm glad to hear what you said, which is exactly what we tell and we preach. Take it to a load, lock off the jack, let it hold for that period, that hold time. Hold time is important. Yeah. Um Okay, so maybe we shift gears now a little bit. Okay. Um, Kyle, your personal preference. There are, I don't know, I think uh, Dr. Main one time looked at, said there were, I don't know, 20 plus ways of interpreting, quote, geotechnical failure from a load test curve. Probably, maybe maybe he said 100. I, I remember there were a lot of different ways, whether we're talking things like the Davison method or the Brink-Hansen method, uh, I don't know. There's, um, you probably know there's the modified Davison's. There's the 
whatever the the the, the FHWA method. Tell me, your do you have a preference? Do you? Have, I guess there's also was it the Butler Hoy method? So, have you got a a preference? Yeah, I I think I read somewhere where someone said there were at least forty methods and okay, forty. All right, that may I, have been but, that may have been Doctor Main. It's probably that article that you're thinking about. But um, um, for axial loads, we've typically used the Davison method. Um, I'm sure you could argue about things like that. Um, um, I, I think the, the problem with coming up with these methods is that um, uh, it's a reflection of the fact that, you know, the load deflection curve comes from both soil resistance and structural resistance. And then the soil resistance comes from side resistance. It's going to develop with small displacements and toe resistance, which develops it, you know, maybe four to 10% of the pile diameter. And, and, and if the, if, if you start to get to where the um, toe resistance is developing, some, in some cases with sands, that's going to increase with displacement. And so it makes it really difficult for you to decide. It's, it's not like you get a clear plunging failure uh, or you, which you often do with maybe soft or plays or loose sands. Um, so you have to come up with some uh, approach to dealing with that. And, and Davison seems to account for the side resistance. It probably doesn't give you enough end bearing. Uh, and it accounts for the length of the pile with the stiffness of the pile. So being fairly simple, but capturing some of the um, factors that are important seems like it'd be a good compromise. But um, I think people just need to agree on which one they're going to use. And then it's probably a issue of how much displacement you're really going to tolerate for the piles for the working load when you get to what capacity you could allow. Well, now there's there. Now there's a uh, an interesting part to that, and that is that that it seems like that our industry, what maybe it moved from using piles as a a a, a much more. Uh, capable foundation type and then they and particularly with respect to limiting displacements but then it seemed like we moved into a period of just simply looking for a factor safety of two yeah um is that been that's been my experience has that been yeah. your experience too that's my experience sometimes i tell somebody i think we can get a lot higher resistance than than you're using in your design no we're we're perfectly fine it's we've got a factor safety of two so yeah, but there's a lot more there. That's no, okay. <laughs> but I, I can understand that maybe sometimes it's not worth the trouble, but I, I think we could advance our profession a little more if we sure got sure. to ultimate. You know, I here here's one and, and I want to step back just a minute because I was I meant to mention this while we're talking about strain gauges. It probably on it's it's usually a number of projects um a year. 
that that we see something come through and it asks us to put strain gate embed strain gauges in say like CFA piles, probably similar would be drilled shafts, embed strain gauges for a tension test. Have you ever seen anybody do that and 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 actually be able to interpret the results? Have you ever been able to uh, do something like that? My 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 standard answer is is that I don't want to try to interpret those results. I'll tell them all embed the strain gauges, but <clears throat> I don't know what how I would do it. Uh, yeah. We actually have a a set of low test data that's from a pullout test, but the the whole system um, had a failure before they could get to the get very far in the process, but I haven't looked at it very carefully. Uh, I can imagine there could be some difficulties trying to see how that's going to work, but I haven't really had very much experience with that. Tim. I just well, I'm, I, I I mean, just in my mind's eye, uh, I, I understand people kind of think it's just as simple as looking at a modulus. But in tension, yeah, just even the stress distribution is different. It's not like in compression, you take the whole area of the element and you're put, putting it in compression. But meanwhile, in like pulling on something, you're pulling on a center bar. Yeah. So while the bar is in tension, what is the grout doing? The grout may not necessarily be in tension. It, some of it may be in shear or some of it may be in compression depending on where your gauges I just, I don't know I'm just thinking out loud yeah I think that assumption that you have a, a constant strain or, or the plane is not going to be yeah a very good assumption at that at that point but so I I can see what you're saying and anyway my doubts about it well we'll look at that Sometime we're going to have a moment to look at that other test data that we've been ignoring. That's right. That's oh, right. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. No, I, I've, I've all, well, I did think about this and I thought about, we were talking about strain gauge. What I thought about is if they put a plate at the bottom of the pile and then they pull from that plate and they keep the whole pile in compression, that could work. Yeah. But, but I don't think they could do it. Um, by just pulling on a bar and transferring it to shear, I think then the profile would the whole the whole concept that the profile, like you said, is is constant strain, is, and and knowing what the modulus would be, I, I don't think we would. But anyway, that's just yeah. Didn't want to get side sidetracked, but I wanted to to touch on it, um, and give our folks something to think about. All right, um. You've run a lot of load tests, Kyle. Tell me your, tell me common mistakes. Throw them out there. You've seen, you've read a lot of other people's load testing. Can you give me some common mistakes, something for our, our listeners to be aware of our, uh, in testing and interpreting load test data? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I guess right to start with is uh not having any redundancy in the measurements that they're doing um so routinely i have our guys we load up to a very small displacement and then we start checking we manually 
we're we're recording everything with the data acquisition system on a laptop and everything but uh, i like to just have a a check with real simple instrumentation we check the uh, load cell with the pressure that's reading on the pump and surprisingly you know, there are many times more than you more than zero uh, where you find out something's not right and uh, if you have some way of checking at it right up front before you've gone too far in the process it can save you a lot of heartache um, uh, similar for the displacement calculations you know even a simple thing that like a like a dial gauge that you can read and just compare the numbers and make, okay we're okay let's keep going but if something has to be has is out of caliber you know if the calibration is not entered properly and you're getting crazy values then that's got to get corrected early on um you know sometimes uh in utah we get temperatures in the hundreds and then cools down at night uh, we try and shield things from the sun um inadequate load frames that are just barely set up to get to where you want to be and can't go uh or we can't get to the real load so we don't or the failure load so you're not taking advantage of that opportunity to get um, improve our design ability failure to spend the money to to get end bearing component and side resistance load distribution i i think it's a false economy that we're talking about um i'd even contribute some of my own money to do it um sure and just leave it out uh, we've had some cases where the loading systems are are kind of dicey. When you say that, you, what, you, you're, you're saying that you feel like uh, you maybe what maybe got some eccentricity in there. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, things are not uh, properly aligned, or you can see that something can rotate, and and the the load cell can come flying out. Um, this is a this is an area where you have to be really careful because um, you're going to actually put that load on there. It's I, not like it's not like a design where it, this load may never come on it during its lifetime. No, no. You're going to put that load on, and that I would put that as a maybe not a common mistake, but it is a mistake. No. I, I will say that it is a common mistake. People misunderstanding exactly how much energy is in the system you know they kind of flippantly will say maybe oh we're only going to go to 800 kips 800 kips that's a ton of energy in that system yeah. you know or or i've seen i mean and i'm not criticizing people but you know people will say well we really want a 2400 kip load test you're like do you realize or you know 2000 kip load do you realize how much energy and then people will say, but but we don't want you to use a reinfo a, a, an extra cage. We don't. And, and, and now we're getting into my common mistakes, but that yeah. hit on that one. So yeah, what we see is that you got a production pile and then you got a test pile and people will say, uh-uh, uh-uh, 
you must use your production reinforcing cage in your test pile, but you must load it twice. To twice. <laughs> and it's like, guys, you don't understand. I'm sitting next to this load test. Yeah. And if that pile breaks and all that energy is released, uh, I don't want to be the guy making that call. So I want it to be re more heavily reinforced. And we get a lot, and that happens. That's a lot. That's a fight a lot of times. Yeah. Um, yeah I've, I've had a, the welds break on a reaction pile while you're, I don't know, no one knew that there was a problem, but um, when that explodes, that energy gets released. <laughs> it's scare the uh, life out of you. It, it, it does. I, I've seen a few things that, that again, I'm, I've, I've been fortunate, never been, I've never been in any Shoot. serious accident or, or fatality, but I've seen some stuff that I'm like, that's a lot of energy. Just don't be flipping around it. Don't. And that's so, so a couple of my, I won't say common mistakes, but recommendations yeah. would be is that don't ever start a load test that you're not prepared to finish. Don't start, mm -hmm. don't start it late enough. That's going to get dark on you and you don't have lights. Don't get it to where somebody's got a, you know, somebody looks at you and says, I got two hours. Let's start doing the load test. Cause I'm out of here and don't do it. Just yeah. say, then we'll put off till tomorrow. I kind of jokingly tell people, don't ever start a low test on an empty stomach because you, <laughs> you you make different decisions. At least I do. And I try yeah. to, maybe maybe I'm the one, but I make different decisions when I'm hungry than I am when I'm okay. I'm just like, okay, I this is the right thing to do. Let's just do it. Um, the, the other thing that I do is I usually rope off. Uh, I tell folks, we're running a low test. These are the people that can be close to it. These Anybody else, run them off. Because if, if you run a load test anywhere, it suddenly it's like it's like a museum. People want to just get in line to walk walk up and look at this thing that's got, you know, a 900 kips on it, you know, being applied over something that's, you know, uh, an inch wide. I mean, not an inch wide, a foot wide. Yeah. Ugh. Or, or they're walking in and they happen to bump something. Kick. Right? Oh, I'm uh, Hit the I, reference frame. At or... least at least five times I've had people walk up and rest their foot on the reference beam like it was like you know a fireside chat. And I'm so now, like I said, I'm like, I don't care who you are. I don't care whether you're the the owner or the VP or whatever, just get out of now. I do, and that's the other thing that I my other rule of thumb is that anybody that's going to be on a load test has something to do. Uh, now, the reason I say that uh, is, and I'm not going to name names, but we were running a bunch of load tests uh, for a very big project, and uh, an engineer who was assigned to us from a geotechnical engineering group, not not within our company, but but from another company was assigned to us, and he went asleep. He just rolled up and went to sleep right next to the load test. Oh man. And you know, they're you're running a load test, and I mean, nobody usually wants to be out there, you know, and it's a little tedious. Yeah. And for someone just to fall asleep, I'm like, yeah, we're we're not doing it. If you're out here, you're gonna do something, you know. Uh, so I usually assign a task 
to everybody that wants to stay at the load test and everybody else gets that gets out of that. Maybe it's somebody that's just simply watching the we, we usually we put like a a um like a reference mark on the on the reaction uh anchors just to see if one may be pulling out or something or which one if we if one starts to pull out we know which one it is or something but yeah you know that's all i gotta do um anyway those are some of my 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 recommendations and common mistakes um good ideas in, interpreting load test data you got anything what you you've probably seen some of your students and i'm sure you've also improved on your process do you look back and say yeah that's how i should have interpreted it well it's mostly about how we've talked about the strain gauges and and things but um uh Every time we try and skimp on something, it comes back to bite us. Uh, like, um, well, should we try three strain gauges instead of four on on opposite, you know, two on opposite sides and 90 degrees from each other? Then one goes out if you have three, and then you're, what? Um, now, now, if it's bending... You know, you don't know if you can use that, and you end up with a huge uncertainty about one of them. So, it's a pretty simple thing, but um, very straight, pretty important thing to do. Um, now, now on opposite sides. What would you say is the, the? What I've seen is that the expectation on the practical limitation of how close strain gauges can be and provide something meaningful uh, sometimes gets a little bit, let's say it, it gets out of balance. I, you know, my, my personal preference is that probably anything closer than 10 feet is probably a waste of time, but. 10 feet vertically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's, what's have you, because what I see a lot of times people will put strain gauges and they'll say, oh, well, I've got a two foot layer of sand and I want a strain gauge at the top of that layer. And then I want one at the bottom layer. And I want you to tell me what the side resistance is in that two foot layer. And I'm like, man, that I, I just don't think I think the interpretation is going to just it's going to you're going to it's going to be a mistake to interpret that as that side resistance. What tell me what you your thoughts um we've 10 feet is probably a typical length on a longer pile that we use so we distribute it i'm i am surprised sometimes like you where you think um wow that ought to show a, a stark change right there and, and you don't you don't see it um even um i had uh four strain gauges in a liquefied layer and i was trying to interpret what the value what the value was and i took the average of the uh the gauges Whole range over that range but i got kickback from a reviewer on a paper says no that's um it's a little lower in this top half a little higher on the bottom half and i just i know strain gauges can be you know very uh have a uh, high precision but i just don't trust the values 
uh, enough to to just go every little spot along the length of the pile and, and assume it's going to be exactly that. I'm looking at um, overall behavior. I, I think you've got to. I don't think that I don't I think just the process itself doesn't lend itself to saying and, and that also it also ignores now not maybe not necessarily in terms of driven, but it might be driven. But it also ignores if you start looking at it like that, it kind of ignores somewhat uh, the physical effects of installation. And I'll give you an example. So um, and I think Bent, whether I had, I had thought about it and Bent kind of confirmed what I was thinking or, or Bent Felenius brought it up. But, you know, going back to my sand illustration, yeah. Um, if you've got a thin layer of sand, if you're drilling through that. It's very, it's very unlikely you're going to get a perfect uh, cylinder through that sand. It's much more likely that you're probably going to probably get a bulge at the top of that sand, and you may get a bulge underneath that sand. And so then when you load it, you're and, and we've I've seen this oh. that you kind of get this shadowing toe effect right at that top gauge. You follow, you follow what I'm saying? Not really. Um, okay. So if you look at like if 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 you if you drill a if you drill a CFA pile vertically mm -hmm. and and in, in like a homogeneous material, you'd assume it to be a perfect cylinder. Okay. But suddenly now mm -hmm. you put a dense sand in there that's going to be like it is not going to want to bulge out. It's going to you're going to cut it and it's going to be like a clean cut. But if you've got a softer upper soil and a softer lower soil, probably your diameter is going to be a little bit bigger than that clean okay. cut. Yeah. And so now you've got maybe even a little bearing on top of that sand as opposed to just simply pure side resistance. Yes. So that sand behaves really odd. Uh, and the gauges will reflect that. So you've got to think when you're looking at the strain gauge data, not only that, hey, I can just take a plus B divided by C, and this will give me my unit side resistance. But you got to think, okay, why did that number give me this number when we know that it shouldn't be? How do I get a, how come I got such a low load when I've only had two foot of soil? Oh, well, maybe it's coming out and bearing. Maybe it's shadowing that. Yes. <clears throat> um, you, you have to think the whole thing together. And at some point, like you said, if you're, if you're in liquefied soil, for example, like you were, and you've got tightly, gauges and you're like look i it's not going to zigzag through there it, it's just yeah that, that, and if it does that's not meaningful no one's ever going to say well you know i'm going to design it so it zigzags like kyle rollins paper yeah i'm yeah so i'm taking the average of slope and coming i up. would i think you got to <laughs> i mean you just i think the key is that when you're interpreting load test data you can go by the numbers and then you've got to take what you know is engineer rationale and and so you know and i'm not saying change the numbers but you've got to make a the right word is interpret you've got to make a yeah. interpretation of what physically is going on needs to make sense right um yep and needs to consider how you're going to use the data down the road all right um kyle we're going to shift gears okay all right which now we're going to jump into, we're going to move from load testing and load test interpretation 
we're going to look at, uh, I'm sure, something near and dear to your heart, lateral pile behavior. Um, okay. uh, you've performed uh, a lot of lateral testing and including pile groups, right? That's right. Okay. And, and you've even probably put together like uh, P recommendations out for P multipliers. For different sure. soil types, what would if if you when you're talking to your class, you know, if you and if you've got like some folks that you, the heart of what you want them to pull away from your class in terms of lateral pile and pile group behavior, tell us maybe what are the key elements? Okay. Okay. <clears throat> well, if I'm talking to my class, I try to give them a practical world illustration to start with. So some things perform better in a group than individually, and some things perform worse in a group. So an example is uh, we're getting to football season now, and every team's still undefeated, so there's a lot of enthusiasm going around. And uh, BYU's football teams have typically done much better as a team than you would expect based on their individual talents. We don't usually get the four- and five-star recruits, but they fit into a system that operates well when everyone does their part. So some we've had some good seasons. Um, best wishes to Tennessee, Tim. You get going? Well, well, you know, actually, I'm a Georgia Tech guy. But oh, you're Georgia I, Tech. Yeah, and I was going to correct you. Not every team uh, is uh, undefeated. I think oh, really? Tech already, we already took a uh, <laughs> just a, a theoretical loss because we know that one's a well, real one's coming around the corner. <laughs> All so my tech buddies in the Big Twelve this year, so we're going to have a oh uh, man, I'm tough sledding. I'm sorry, um, but uh, some groups perform perform worse than the sum of their parts, and the easy target is Congress. You know, everyone likes their representative, but the approval rating for Congress overall is like nineteen percent this year. That's a good illustration. That's so, right. Um, Everyone likes are their center, but hates everybody else's. That's right. Yeah, theirs are fine, but everyone else has got something wrong. <laughs> so pile groups are one of those things that perform worse when they are loaded laterally in a group. And we performed um, lateral pile group load tests on about 12 or 13 piles in sand and clay over the last 20 years or so. And uh, when we started doing these tests, I think there were only a few um, tests. Uh, Dan Brown had done a test in a power group in sand and a power group in clay. There was a French test. And so when I got ready to do this, I called Dan and tried to get his advice. And he said, the key thing for you to do is to get uh, the right connection. And so he actually sent us his pin connection at, uh, uh, system so that we could put them on our piles. But um, after doing this for a number of piles, we, we've found uh, similar to what Dan said originally that the pile resistance is dependent on the position in the row or position in the group, you know, the row position, not the position within the row. So elastic theory suggests that you'd have higher loads on the edges, which didn't turn out to be true in our most of our tests. They were just random. Uh, the group effect decreases, and this is logically as the pile spacing increases. 
So we've had to have P multiplier curves for different rows uh, and for different spacings. And we found that uh, the behavior of the third, fourth, and fifth row piles back from the front uh, is quite similar. So we've developed P multipliers for the first row, the second row, and then we use, we assume that they're all gonna be the same for third, fourth, and fifth row piles. When we look at the uh, maximum bending moment in the, in the different rows of piles, um, we find for a given load, this group interaction effect um, leads to an increase in the maximum bending moment um, uh, for a given load uh, due for the trailing rows because they have less uh, soil resistance around them. Um, for a given deflection, the moment is lower in the trailing rows because they have lower loads on the pile. Uh, when we've done repeated cyclic loading, we've done this primarily for earthquake kind of conditions, magnitude seven and a half earthquake might produce 15 stress cycles. So we're seeing like a 20% reduction from the peak load for that case. We found that the computer models uh, for the piles we tested in clay were providing reasonable estimates of the single pile response for virgin loading. Um, as long as we could get reasonable um, estimates of the undrained shear strength. Um, and then we, we, like I said, developed these P multipliers, keeping the properties the same for a single pile as we had for the group. All we would change is the P multipliers. And then we can group them for leading row piles, second row piles, and third and higher row piles. Um, some people in numerical analyses are suggesting that if you had a massive pile group, that the values would go even lower, but we've not seen that. Um, we didn't see any large difference between um, piles that were two feet or one foot in diameter. So we're uh, considering them similar. And this one surprised me is that uh, if you've, uh, if you have the right P multiplier for the spacing, uh, you could get accuracy within about 20% of the measured value. And this low error is due to the fact that we always had a single pile load test uh, to calibrate against to start with. So my suggestion to my students every semester is that they consider the value of doing a lateral single pile lateral load test. It's relatively simple and easier to perform, a lot easier than a, a vertical axial load test. And you get, it's primarily uh, de dependent on the upper part of the soil profile and you can get a really good calibrated model based on that single pile load test. And then the P multiplier, variation of P multipliers is, is a lot smaller than the variation that you get from the single pile load test. So if you will do that, you have a higher, much higher likelihood of getting the group behavior correct. Last little thing is we've found that the P multipliers get smaller as you go from 
dense sand uh, as you move from um, as you move to denser soils. So sands experience more group interaction and a reduction in the capacity than you get with clay. And we think that's because the higher the friction angle is, the longer the failure wedge is behind the pile and the wider the failure planes uh, are as the pile is loaded laterally. So if you think about that, you might ask yourself, what P multiplier would you use if you're testing a group or would, if you were designing for a pile group and liquefied soil? So that's the weakest soil. So it should have the lowest group interaction effects. The shear planes don't form a general shear failure. And that's exactly what we found when we did pile group load tests in liquefied soil is the P multiplier is basically one. They're within the experimental error that you see, you see the same load deflection curves. So Kyle, um, how many piles make a group? Is it two or is it 10? What, what number would you say that piles start to begin this group behavior? That's a really good question. Um, if you just had two piles and they're five diameters apart, I don't think you'd see very much. We we see group interaction effects when you have a, a group in a two by two arrangement. We can clearly see that. And sometimes we've we've seen group interaction effects when you have just a row of piles, say at the edge of an abutment even when they're spaced five diameters apart. So, but but the, the, the effect is not as pronounced as you would see for larger pile groups. Um, for example, we, we conducted a lateral a load test on a group of three piles in a row and they were behind an MSC wall. And so this is, they were driven, uh, the, the MSC wall was built up around the piles so they're within this reinforced zone. And uh, we tested a single pile laterally and a group. So these piles are 12 inch diameter steel pipe piles. They're spaced five diameters apart. And we still saw a group reduction of 25% those piles that were um, three piles, five diameters apart. So I think you can see group interactions uh, maybe the, the MSC walls is uh, different than just a uniform layer sure. of soil. But, uh, well, that's good to know. Similar results where I think Parsons uh, and his group uh, at uh, University of Kansas were uh, for a, a wall, an MSC wall like this. But that's good to know. I mean, you're so those are relatively small groups. of uh, You said a two by two. You're starting to see some group effects. Yes. Okay. Do, is there any, um, you mentioned, is there any change in the P multiplier with displacement? Can, is there, say, a very small displacement of 0.1 inch? Is the P multiplier the same at one inch? Uh, if, if you start looking at 0.1 inch, the displacement uh, is so small that those shear planes haven't developed as much as they are going to. So um, as a practical matter, 
there's there's a higher p multipliers or less group interaction i think once you start getting to like a half inch of deflection or or more then you do start to see a fairly consistent p multiplier it it I does trend downward as deflection increases but um for design purposes i think you you'd probably be okay using a constant value for a fairly wide range you know you know many our our, our code has changed um recently um and i when i first started engineering we really didn't have a, a code re requirement for maximum lateral displacement on a pile but the code has evolved, at least the IBC has evolved, where really people are kind of set on about a half inch as being the maximum. Mm -hmm. um, and we find ourselves a lot of times with a fixed head condition, the lateral, the, the displacement is probably closer to a tenth of an inch. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that we don't use a P multiplier, but certainly we're being I would say an additional level of conservatism based on what you're saying by using the the O power group P multipliers. Yeah, Is that fair. Um, that's that's probably uh, a fair statement. the The difference is most of our lateral group load tests have been conducted on free head piles, and um, where where much of our reduction is probably tied to that shallow failure wedge um when we've tried to deeper gotcha. when we've tried to use the um, same p multipliers for a fixed head case we do all right uh even though the uh, the displacement and the moment distribution is probably is quite a lot different than what you'd see for the free head case and I'm guessing that's because we're we're seeing group interactions that aren't necessarily directly associated with the shallow wedge. They may be associated with interactions at, at deeper depths. That makes sense. Okay. Um, you had mentioned that you you had compared the results of your tests to probably L-Pile or group or some other PY-based uh, analysis, and you felt good about the calibrations with clay. Um, the softer clays, yeah. Softer clays. My, my experience has been, and, we, and I love running lateral load tests. Uh, probably my biggest problem with running them is that whenever we run them, we get a lot more resistance than what you would expect. Now, that's not to say that uh, you can incorporate it, but there, it just seems like it's the case. We may, uh, you, you, your thoughts, I mean, am I, am I, have you ever had, have you had that similar experience where? We sure have, especially with SANS. And, uh, um, you know, when we did our static, before we liquefied the soil at Treasure Island, we just did static load tests. And even for this soil with a friction angle of, well, soil with a relative density of 50%, which liquefied in the earthquake, so it's loose enough to liquefy, 
in order to match the load deflection curves that we were measuring, we had to have a friction angle of 39 degrees, you know, which is pretty high. And I know for Dan's test with sand, he was looking at values like 45 degrees in order to, to use the model in L-Pile and get the right answer. And um, I think there's a maybe one or two reasons why we have this conservatism. And one is that um, I think is that we're using correlations with friction angle that don't consider uh, increased resistance due to dilation at shallow, at shallow depths where we get a lot of our lateral resistance. Uh, so if we use a correlation that accounts for that, like Bolton's equations uh, that have an added factor for a friction angle due to dilation, and it's dependent on the, the vertical confining structure, we do, we do better. And I think there's another factor is that um, uh, Reese in his uh, original development of the PY curve equations at Austin, Texas Austin used a Rankine failure wedge to model the behavior. And in his write-up, he says, we should probably be using a log spiral failure wedge, but we're gonna leave that for the future to, to deal with. And, and no one's really taken on that challenge. It's a complicated thing uh, with a curvilinear surface instead of a linear one. Uh, but we know for sure that the KP value for a log spiral condition is much higher than that for Rankine KP value. And I think this might explain part of it. Our model, we're trying to make it work with a Rankine KP when it's probably more like a log spiral, log uh, case of P value. So anyway, that's, but we do see uh, routinely in SANS higher values than what we can, what we get if we used ash, um, uh, I know just standard correlations between sure. load count and sure. If you go in and friction angle, if you like, I mean, we, I mean, you know, if it's just a regular sand at whatever thirty-two degrees, and you put it into L pile or group, and you run, you represent your load test, you're going to get a lot higher displacement. At least that's what we've experienced. We've yeah. theorized. I like yours. We've theorized that there's probably during a test that there's like some like uh there's friction on the back side of the pile mm. you know that keeps it in compression that's not really captured in the winkler representation of a beam on elastic foundation but we're just trying to explain it um i know but i i think the the real question is is the resistance really there and then i guess the the other question i've got is and we don't have, I'm sure we're not going to have an answer today, is how would we convince a reviewer to accept a back a backfitted model that has a 48 degree sand? You follow me? And you're yeah. like, Wait, well, it fits our it fits our load test, but no, I 48 is unrealistic. Show me the lab test. Yeah. Uh doesn't exist. I think you'll be hard pressed to match it any other way and i get those kind com comments on papers as well is that they would rather see a, a lab test but we've 
done the field test, so yes. we know it has to. It's a problem with the model, I think, rather than a problem sure. with the friction angle. That I don't think you're going to get it from the lab test. So that's my take, anyway. Kyle, it's been great. Um, this is going to end our uh, part one. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll sign off now. Uh, folks, uh, please join us um, for our, our part two of this podcast uh, next month. Thank you. On behalf of DFI, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The views, information, and opinions expressed during Deep Foundation Institute's podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of DFI. DFI does not verify or take responsibility for the accuracy of the information contained, nor does it warrant that the information contained herein is suitable for any general or specific use. The podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Editing, modification, or redistribution of this podcast is prohibited. Thank you for your time. Keep on surviving.